welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. So hello and welcome to the latest in Sibylline's Insights series of podcasts. Regular listeners will notice that we've taken a short break during which time we have been planning many new audiovisual activities to support our analysis. This week's broadcast therefore follows a new format based on the excellent feedback you have all so far kindly volunteered to us, uh, where we will be covering a few topics each time that we think are of most relevance. We'll also be including some pointers on triggers, indicators, events and warnings to watch over the coming weeks as a regular feature. It's certainly fair to say that there is a lot going on in the world, quite apart from COVID, which of course continues to dominate headlines, particularly given the current rising infection rates in Europe, Eurasia and much of the Americas. We have long argued that the main impact of COVID though is as a catalyst for the many underlying global trends that have been steadily building over the last few years, so discussing these will remain our primary focus. This coming week we'll see more progress towards resolution for Brexit, for example, although the process itself remains shrouded in uncertainty, and this is a topic we'll no doubt be visiting in future podcasts. Similarly, revelations of the scale of a right-wing plot in Michigan, coupled with the comments of the new head of MI5 in the UK, have raised attention on the scope of this threat. Due in part to opportunities offered by COVID, cyber operations are also increasing, particularly against the medical sector, posing particular challenges to businesses and governments at this critical time. However, this week, though, we're going to be taking a deeper dive into two particular topics that have long been of interest to the team. These are the continued developments around North Korea and the unrest in Russia's backyard. So in the early morning of 10th of October, North Korea's supreme leader, Kim Jong-un, presided over a large military parade marking the 75th anniversary of the founding of the ruling Workers' Party. During the highly choreographed event, the government unveiled a range of never-seen-before military hardware, including a new intercontinental ballistic missile, one of the largest in the world. Although untested, this weapon was somewhat anticipated, but of almost as much concern is the massive launch vehicle for the missile, an 11-axle beast that dwarfs the already massive TELs obtained from China previously. Uh, previous estimates of North Korean capability have suggested that only six of those would ever be available to the regime, so the development of a new platform is, of course, something of a concern. More widely, heavily modernised tanks seemingly drawing from the Russian Amata design family and a range of other equipment seem to show the benefits of foreign engagement with the North. So with me today is Dr. Hugo Yu, lead analyst and head of our Asia-Pacific desk. Uh, Hugo, thank you for joining us and welcome and uh, looking forward to discussing these developments with you. So in showcasing the latest edition in the strategic arsenal, what message is Pyongyang intending to send? Hi, thank you, Justin. Pleasure to be here. I think most importantly, showing you off is big shining a ballistic missile ICBM, the latest edition, as you mentioned, and also, as you mentioned, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, in terms of size in the world. I think North Korea sent a very, very clear political message to US and Washington's allies about its strong determination in continuing advancing in its nuclear and ballistic missile program. So basically, we think it will never give up as a problem because it sees it as an important security guarantor and an important guarantee for, for the region's survival, having a nuclear deterrence. Now, as the rest of the world 
grapples with the COVID-19 pandemic. The massive military parade, along with the new uh, military hardware, also serve to portray the strength and resolute on part of the Supreme Leader uh, for the domestic audience. Let's not forget, having uh, led the reclusive region for many, many years now, are still young and still need a lot of support uh, among the uh, domestic population, but more, more importantly, within the Workers' Party and the Ministry. So by showing massive parade, um, it's it trying to basically uh, reinforce and strengthen its credibility, its leadership, and its authority over North Korea. Thank you, Hugo. So what does the unveiling of this largest ICBM mean for regional security? Right. Justin, as you are already alluded to, the new, the new missile is not to believed to have been tested, let alone being sort of a, in any sort of a operational deployment. So there are many doubts remain about its actual capability and reliability, and some have even questioned whether this is a real thing. So just judging by its size alone, I think the new weapon could potentially be able to carry a heavier payload or even multiple warheads. And that, if proved true, then it would definitely pose a more serious threat to the U.S. missile defense system. That said, you know, there are still many, many tech hurdles that North Korea needs, uh, still needs to jump over in order to actually arm a nuclear warhead on a fully operationalized in the end. And so we are, we are still a little bit a long way away from that. And also an, another interesting thing that you pick up is the launch vehicles. Now they are showing more than uh, six, which many previously believed that was the maximum, uh, maximum number for the heavy ICBM uh, launch vehicles. So potentially that suggests that North Korea has really sort of cracked the technology of you know, modifying or building a new heavy uh, transporters for these massive missiles. And that potentially could, uh, could be a, a real threat because as many big missiles uh, as you like, uh, like to have, you need to have a, a substantial amount of uh, uh, transporters in, in able to move them around and, and potentially uh, launch them. So, so yeah, so that, that's potentially a, a very significant development in, in, in that regard. Also, well, the Shining Big missile grabbed a lot of international attention, but really for South Korea and Japan, they will be a lot more concerned about seeing new multiple rocket launcher systems uh, or more advanced short-range uh, missiles put on show at the parade. So these, these weapons could, you know, well potentially pose a more direct threat to, to Kim Jong's uh, neighbors than the ICBM. ICBM threats is mainly aimed at the, uh, at the United States. Hmm. Yeah, and it was very interesting for me as a, as a tank commander uh, in my own previous existence to see the development of some of the armor that was in the parade, which to me again showed those uh, relations back to some of the Armata thinking. And I guess whilst one can look at a giant untested ICBM and, and secretly wonder if it's just some form of missile pinata, you know, that's been improvised, I think obviously the scale of the, the TEL and the development of that was, you can't fake that. So that clearly to me, you know, did show the development in those areas. And it's a very interesting point that, of course, in the immediate region, people are going to be much more concerned about potentially very capable uh, armor that can operate in mountainous terrain, 
and systems that can negate modern sensors, I suppose. So those advances that may be linked to, to Russia and China are, are certainly something that, that occurred to me on looking at it. I think you mentioned the testing regimen so far, and it is interesting the way that they've gone about this because there have been a lot of missile developments. A lot of them haven't even been test fired or have been test fired once or twice that we're aware of. And of course, this latest weapon's never been test fired before. I mean, does that suggest that everything else has been a step on the way? Uh, does it suggest that there is an element of bluff in the program? Or is it just the fact that there are limitations on them effectively managing to test things? What, I mean, in other words, what has this testing uh, regimen you know, showed us about intentions from North Korea? Well, I, th I think, as you mentioned, not all of ICBM has ever been tested. I think there's quite a few of them. They've been parade and um, put on show and, and made a, you know, one of the biggest uh, political hoo-ha about it, but, you know, just left alone and, and move on uh, to the next one. I think, you know, we don't know. I think it, it will be too early, too early to judge whether they will actually carry, you know, uh, fire text, tests on, on this latest one uh, yet. But, um, you know, I, I'm in the opinion of it's not, imminent that Kim Rang will carry out an ICBM text, uh, test. What more likely will happen is, uh, as you know, Justin, you know, Kim Jong-un has a history of stealing the thunder of others, or should we, should we say using global events to Kim Rang's own advantage, like a massive uh, military parade to the eve of uh, 2018 uh, Winter uh, Olympic, which was held in, in South Korea. And yet, he fired some some missiles into uh, into uh, the Japan Sea as Trump prepared to uh, meet Chinese President Xi Jinping back in 2017. So yeah, so I think we cannot rule out that King might do some similar provocative things. For example, might launch some short-range missiles, uh, or conduct some military drills, or even some uh, artillery fires. Uh, as we head into the um, uh, November 3rd poll um, and, and to make a political state, uh, statement and to, you know, try to grapple the international attention and also to showcase, you know, Pyongyang's determination uh, as uh, uh, to preserving independent uh, uh, regime. So that we'll potentially see. But um, personally, I don't think it, it, it's actually preparing to to conduct any uh, any sort of a firing text on, on this latest uh, ICBM model in in the in the short uh, short term. Well, and this is the thing: is whether it's real or not. I guess it's having a strategic effect by existing, isn't it? So, arguably, the best thing is exactly. almost not to test it because you just need it there. So yeah. I mean, how will this latest military display affect key stakeholders' strategic thinking on the nuclear and ballistic missile program? I mean, you mentioned the anxiety regionally. Uh, potentially mounting about other systems. I mean, do you see the US thinking more about this and how are China and Russia feeling in their, about their relationship with North Korea at the moment? Well, interestingly, I mean, this time around, well, I, I guess the rest of the world is um, busy with, uh, with focusing on other things. I mean, the US has really sort of uh, responded very mutually, so much so uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo actually played down the risk and citing a lack of ICBM text by Pyongyang uh, over the past 12 months as a sort of a, a credit to um, Trump's uh, administration's policy of engagement with Pyongyang. And likewise, you know, South Korea, Japan, and to some extent China, they are 
they, they, they all sort of uh, respond quite lightly and didn't want to give, uh, in, uh, in, in our opinion, a lot of oxygen to the North Korean region on this uh, military parade, on the latest ICBM, precisely because, you know, A, they're they not sure whether, as we said, whether this thing is real um, and, and how credible it is and what, what capability is still trying to work out. And B, you know, many are, are still fighting uh, the COVID pandemic, um, the economic impact, and also a lot of the domestic issues that needs uh, the leaders and the government's attention. And, and to perhaps, you know, North Korea, if they haven't really kicked up something huge, i.e. conducting a nuclear test or, or, or firing a missile across the territory over Japan, then perhaps, you know, they, they, they calculated it's not worth uh, making a huge fuss about it. See, I think, yeah, they, they, they see this as um, Kim Jong-un falling back to the, you know, old trusted playbook of strategic provocation in hoping to strike, uh, to strike a grand bargain or at least, I think, setting up his door for the possible change administration at the White House ahead of a US, uh, November US uh, elections. I think this kind of behavior in terms of showing off uh, military muscles and, and the latest um, ICBM, it follows, actually follows a, a similar pattern that Pyongyang has shown lately since the failed Trump King summit in uh, February 2019 in, in Hanoi. So it perhaps doesn't come a total surprise to the re regional partners and, and, and regional neighbors to, to the latest actions by, by Pyongyang. You say so, yeah, back to business as usual. And you used the words before political hoo ha, which I think would be a great title for a book on uh, maybe North Korea over the last 20 years, if not longer. Uh, I guess the other thing you mentioned was COVID. And of course, can we discount the impact of COVID on North Korea itself? We can't. This is the thing. Uh, as such a um, reclusive regime and secretive regime, we, we, we don't know uh, from open sources that how badly North Korea is impacted, uh, has been impacted by the, by the disease. For sure, they have infections and perhaps local transmissions as well. But given that they closed the border to China pretty, pretty, pretty early on, on the outside of the outbreak in China, and straight away they shut the border. It's pretty hard to get into North Korea on, on, on a good day. The, uh, the, the international uh, people's exchange and travel uh, is already sort of really, really limited. So I think, you know, just speaking on the, on the infection itself, albeit we don't have the actual number, and probably we will never have a such an actual number, but I think the in, in, infection and the risk of COVID-19 in North Korea would be low in comparison to other neighbors. But even with this small number of infection, now bear in mind no, North Korea's crumbling health system and, and then really sort of fragile economy, uh, even without any pandemic or natural disasters, this could potentially have a much, much more accurate impact on people's lives and the country's economy and, and the livelihood. That's another reason why I see, which I mentioned before, uh, you know, uh, throwing on such a big party to celebrate the ruling, ruling party's uh, 75th anniversary uh, and showing, uh, you know, the big ministry muscles 
uh, on parade, that it will actually sort of intended to strengthen the, the king's regime uh, and, and showing strength and resolute for the domestic audience. Mm. So what are you looking for next? What are we looking for next? I think, what would they do in the coming weeks as we head into the, uh, the poll in the, in the USA? I think North Korea want to be ready, well, to welcome, well, with uh, inverted comma, the, the, the new administration um, and, and try to do the old tricks um, to, to, you know, try to gain some advantage or gain some leverage on the new administration potentially. And, and perhaps um, if indeed Trump managed to get a second term, then perhaps it would hope that Trump would look beyond the pressure of, um, you know, a domestic electoral campaign and be sort of a more willing to continue the engagement policy with North Korea. And alternatively, if it's a Biden win, then I, I guess Kim Jong-un has to figure out, you know, what Biden would do on, on North Korea. And, and such has been sort of a, such topic has been really sort of a, uh, not being engaged with a lot of debate. Great. Thank you very much, Hugo. And uh, we really appreciate your time and look forward to hearing more insight from the sound of it on, uh, on the way this is going to evolve. And of course, across your region, we have the US-China relationship evolving, as you've just mentioned there. The shifting power plays across the region, partly in response to that. And of course, the sporting focus on East Asia in the next 18 months or so. So I think there's going to be yeah. quite a lot keeping us all busy. So I'm sure we'll have you back again. But thank yeah. you very much indeed for sharing your insight with us. Yeah, no problem. And you mentioned about sporting uh, engagement. I think, you know, uh, also Kim Jong-un will be looking very, watching very closely in the lead up to the uh, Tokyo Olympics next year. Yeah, and that's certainly something we'll come back and revisit. You good. Thank you so much. Thank you. The prolonged coronavirus crisis has exposed long-standing problems of poor governance, endemic corruption, underfunded welfare systems across Eurasia. This has subsequently led to protests in numerous countries in the region as societal anger continues to grow and citizens demand an adequate response from the state to the deepening social economic crisis. As such, the mounting discontent generally triggered by elections, coupled with the falling approval ratings of many leaders in the region, has exacerbated a crisis of legitimacy, which applies to both the region's autocracies and indeed its struggling democracies. This heightened discontent is likely to continue translating into instances of unrest, subsequently presenting Russia with unexpected challenges. The three ongoing conflicts in Belarus, Kyrgyzstan and Armenia, Azerbaijan, certainly all pose distinct concerns for Moscow. To that end, the ongoing episodes of regional unrest will continue to test Russia's role as the ultimate mediator and power broker in the region in the coming months. This course also offers opportunities for other would-be power brokers such as Turkey, to expand their influence in the region. So with us today is Liana Semchuk, our lead analyst and head of Sublines Europe and Eurasia team. Liana, welcome, and special thanks for joining us, given how busy you and the team are at the moment. Why are these three conflicts happening now? Is this timing significant? Uh, thanks, Justin, for the questions. Uh, yeah, so 2020 has uh, definitely been a dynamic year so far globally and has very much been apparent in Eurasia, which saw an explosion of political and, and domestic risk. 
Uh, in the case of, of Belarus in particular, uh, and to a great extent to Kyrgyzstan as well, I would say the timing certainly is reflective of how diminished economic conditions, uh, lack of state support, and rising uh, inequality and poverty uh, have led to mass unrest uh, occurring, particularly around key points in time such as elections. Um, I think in a lot of ways, the situation also holds true with Azerbaijan, where the government is currently also trying to drum up uh, nationalist sentiment and boost uh, nationalist sentiment by trying to reclaim the Nagorno-Karabakh uh, territory, uh, following quite a uh, shaky situation with COVID-19 in that country as well. Yeah, I guess, of course, heavily dependent on, on oil, of course, which has taken a knock. Would we have expected these things to happen in 2020? without COVID? I know some of them, especially Nagorno-Karabakh, have been on our radar for a, a long period of time as frozen conflicts. Obviously, that one goes back to the 80s. Yeah, so we've been looking at that. But would you, would you have been expecting this? Or were they just examples of the sorts of issues that could have happened at any time but have been exacerbated by COVID? Yeah, so I think the, the crisis definitely have been exacerbated quite a lot. I think had the elections, especially elections in, in Belarus, happened at a different point in time, I think we would have probably seen a slightly different outcome. I think first and foremost, uh, the crisis really um, allowed civil society groups to highlight how the government has failed to fill the void uh, when the public needed it most. Uh, Kyrgyzstan had previous uh, instances and examples of revolution, so perhaps this time is a little bit less surprising, but the intensity and the speed with which it happened, I think, also had a lot to do with the fact that there was an influx of migrant workers returning back from Russia to Kyrgyzstan, so there was um, a lot more population in the country that was already quite angry and upset and so any instance of electoral fraud really did trigger it so i think we could definitely say that covid 19 has exacerbated this crisis quite a lot but as you say building on underlying conditions i guess that comes back to our central theme of covid which is it's been an accelerant for all of these flashpoints that have maybe been covered over the last uh, 10 years maybe or if not younger in some cases but these themes spinning over i guess so what is at stake for Moscow in these places and how is Russia currently involved in dealing with these various crises on its periphery? Um, so I'll start with, with Belarus. So right now there is quite a lot in stake for Russia there in, in this particular country. First and foremost, uh, one of Russia's main goals uh, in Belarus continues to be a closer integration uh, between the two countries and a possible establishment of a union state. And so to that, and uh, initially a weakened Lukashenko was quite a preferable option for Moscow as it pushed uh, Belarus further away from the West and uh, much closer to Russia. Um, but uh, of course, the longer the crisis has gone on and now the protests in Belarus have been ongoing for a few months, uh, the more toxic Lukashenko has become and the more deeply unpopular in Belarus and in abroad as well. So that's making it a lot more difficult for Russia to continue supporting him as an individual. And so I think the Kremlin is also just realizing that in order to maintain control over this particular country, it's better to invest into a political class that's loyal to them than to invest everything into one figure. And I think uh, with Belarus right now, Russia has shown quite a big you know, reluctance to engage more directly in the country, such as 
by military. They're also going to be reluctant to engage more directly with military in, in other conflicts in the region as well, I think. But in Belarus in particular, there have been indications that they're potentially seeking to come up with a different political solution, one that might potentially involve uh, one of the jailed opposition members, uh, Viktor Bogoriko, who is a former head of uh, Bell Gazprom Bank, which is a subsidiary of Gazprom. Um, and in a way, he would be more or less a safe option for Kremlin. Lukashenko has actually met with him a couple of days ago. So that's a potential indication that, that Russia is trying to find a different kind of political solution to, to the crisis there. Um, so that's something to look out for in, in Belarus in, in the coming weeks and months, potentially. Thank you. And obviously, it, it is a very strategically important area. And that's why we've long discussed it, given it. Its status almost as a buffer between uh, NATO and Russia to an extent, or a state that can balance between the two. And of course, I guess the concerns around the, the corridor to the Baltic states um, you know, obviously increases the stakes for a nation that I know many corporations might not care as much about as perhaps they should if they if they thought of the, the regional context that it represents. But I think of more direct importance, certainly to a lot of clients we've spoken to, has been the situation in Armenia, Azerbaijan, around Nagorno-Karabakh. So what concerns does this conflict pose for Russia? And do the same constraints apply as you discussed in Belarus? So in the context of um, Armenia and Azerbaijan, I think Russia's position here is a lot more delicate. Um, so traditionally, Russia has maintained uh, good ties with both Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, but Armenia remains Russia's main military and economic ally, allies. So to that end, Russia needs to balance between the two, although it has, of course, sold weapons to both countries and has large populations of both Armenians and Azeris within its own borders. So to intervene on either side would be to essentially sacrifice Russia's role as a mediating regional heavyweight. So they're treading quite lightly in this particular case, um, and I think are trying to secure some sort of a peace deal uh, that's reflected in the fact that on the 10th of October, they managed to get both Armenia and Azerbaijan to agree a humanitarian ceasefire, which unfortunately has, has not really worked in practice and both sides continue um, fighting. But the situation here, I think, is also much more complicated than in other places because it involves um, Turkey, which is openly supporting Azerbaijan and has been supporting it a lot more openly um, since the conflict flared up initially on the 27th of September. So Turkey's involvement here is therefore a potential wild card for Russia because a lot will depend on how um, Ankara behaves uh, moving forward. But I think also to add to that, domestically in Azerbaijan, there's quite a lot of public enthusiasm for this campaign. And Azerbaijan is also militarily more superior to Armenia. So all of these factors paired with um, Turkey's involvement might uh, prompt the government to continue moving forward. And this kind of brief de-escalation in the intensity of fighting that we've seen following the peace deal, or the, rather the humanitarian ceasefire might simply be kind of calm before the storm for a chance for both sides to regroup and, and resupply. So there is a lot more to potentially come around that. And it's an interesting point you make with the Turkish support, and certainly it's caused a lot of commentary in defence circles of the amount of coverage the Azeris have been achieving of their successes, I think because of higher drone usage, uh, the reported use of hunter-killer drones or you know, basically sacrificial drones 
uh, from Israeli sources and uh, clearly obviously a lot of expenditure has been made on some quite advanced military technology I think even stepping on from some of what we've learned from the conflict in the Ukraine I think there's definitely uh, been some experimentation development with that and I imagine that's probably causing significant concern in Armenian circles because they definitely appear to be losing uh, on the global stage I think when people look at that and whether that's PR or whether that's reflective of facts on the ground they are you say the weaker player in this and I guess that does pose a challenge if Russia is going to maintain a balance uh, on that part of the world but the intervention of Turkey you know these more complex relationships on, on the former Soviet fringe uh, are these crises potentially symptomatic of a decline in Russia's influence in the region? Um, so first and foremost I think as, as we mentioned before I think right now the crises I think are just reflective of a higher potential for unrest in the world in general these days but particularly in places where there's been quite a big economic downfall and the government has been unable to to help support so I think I wouldn't necessarily say that all of these are reflective of Russia's decline or Russia's uh, diminished influence. But I think with all of these multiple crises happening at the same time and Russia largely preoccupied and battling a lot of issues domestically as well, such as uh, potential second wave uh, and also preparing for their own elections in 2021 and potential expansion of Putin's rule beyond 2024, it's true that it has been much more difficult for Russia to keep uh, a tighter grip on its neighboring countries. But I wouldn't say that it necessarily already means that they are losing influence. I think there are some signs, though, that in the long term, Russia's influence might erode a bit um, for several reasons. But one of them, for example, concerns uh, demographic changes in Eurasia, which uh, will probably be a limiting factor for Russia's ambitions. Um, for, for example, a lot of post-Soviet generations now do not necessarily look to Moscow as this big fraternal nations, it was during the Soviet era. And a lot of young people no longer have such close contact with, with Russia as the previous generations had. So that will, to some extent, in the long term, potentially undermine uh, Russia's appeal um, and influence. Another uh, one that will remain important, I think, uh, and that will be challenging for Russia is uh, the issue of, around politics of language, which is a very sensitive topic in, in, across Eurasia and many countries, particularly as nationalist tendencies grow. Um, this was a big problem in Ukraine. Uh, we saw this in Belarus as well, where Lukashenko used to try to appeal to nationalist voters and promote the use of Belarusian rather than Russian language. So I think language politics will, will continue to play a role here. And, you know, even as recently as in uh, this year, Russia was quite upset with the decision of uh, Uzbekistan government to enforce the use of Uzbek rather than Russian in the country's civil service. And even this week, one of the billionaires from Russia circles made a large donation to the country to promote the teaching of Russian language in schools in Uzbekistan. So it's quite reflective of Russia's awareness um, of issues uh, of this issue and the need to keep it up in order to continue binding these nations by a common thread of culture, language, history. And the last point to that, I think, of course, economics will play a big role and uh, China, especially in, in the Central Asian region, will remain quite an important actor um, for for Russia to, to challenge because they have made quite a few investments in many of the Central Asian countries and a lot of which have also incurred a lot of debt to China. And that will that will uh, be definitely something to look out for um, in, in, in the years ahead. 
It's an interesting point around China. I remember looking back a number of years ago that some of the most advanced Russian military equipment was always deployed first towards the Chinese border. And I think, although, of course, there's something of an alliance of convenience, I think, especially around uh, hydrocarbon sales with China, Russia's near abroad is also China's near abroad, isn't it? And Turkey's to an extent as well. So there's some quite complicated issues I can see playing out. And certainly when I've spoken to friends traveling in Russia, you know, they, they've all commented on the growth of Chinese soft influence in central Russia and along the Trans-Siberian Railroad, for example, and the way that is, is seen to be changing. And I'm sure that's something that hasn't gone uh, unnoticed in Moscow. So looking further ahead, though, in the coming weeks and months, are there any other potential flashpoints to look out for that you think are going to exacerbate unrest in the region or has it peaked? So 2020 uh, is not over yet, so there are probably a few more potential surprises to look out for in the region, uh, if the current explosion of political risk is anything to go by. Uh, but certainly, uh, Georgia has elections that are coming up, parliamentary elections on the 31st of October, and in Moldova, presidential elections are set to take place on the 1st of November. Uh, and both places have uh, precedent for mass protests, uh, as well as uh, a large uh, Russian influence in, in, in both territories. Um, so there's quite a lot of potential actually around those two for mass unrest to take place if these elections are contested. Um, and also let's not forget that this is these two elections will be happening against the background of everything else in the region that we've just discussed. So there might be um, a lot more public that's inspired to also take to the streets and, and protest should there be any allegations of fraud or, or bribery um, and, and corruption and things of that nature. So I think those two are the main ones. Um, and slightly further ahead in January 2021, Kazakhstan will also um, have elections, which uh, I think Kazakhstan behind Kyrgyzstan is another nation in Central Asia to look out for that has potential for flashpoints of unrest around electoral um, time. So there's three things to, to look out for, I would say. And thank you for the reminder that 2020 isn't over yet. I was just beginning to relax slightly after uh, you know, nine and a half months of uh, a year that started with the potential for a major war in the Middle East and has rapidly moved on. You say a, a year where our most popular report is one called What You May Have Missed While Looking at COVID, uh, which I think does serve as a reminder that all these things are accelerating. And I guess with a hard winter ahead, and as you mentioned with Kazakhstan in particular, having been impacted uh, quite severely by the virus, both uh, in terms of casualties and, of course, in terms of the economic impact for oil-reliant states. Uh, I think that's a, a pretty salient reminder of what else we might see coming down the line. So, Liana, thank you very much for that, and again, for taking the time. I know it's a particularly busy week with uh, these things starting to boil over, uh, but we really appreciate you sharing your expertise and look forward to having you back. Thank you. Thank you very much, Justin. So joining me for the final stage of today's programme is Ed Johnson, who leads our analytical insight team in London. Ed, welcome and thank you for joining. Hi, Justin. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Uh, what we want to do, we want to go through some of the things that are on the team's mind over the next couple of weeks to help guide our listeners in things they should be tracking or caring about and indicators. And obviously, we've talked about uh, a few of the big issues in the programme so far, and I think you were saying that Nagorno-Karabakh was something that we were going to continue being worried about over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't seem as if it's going to give the conflict will abate at all. Russia seems committed to staying largely neutral and, and positioning itself as a peace broker rather than actively engaging in the conflict while uh, Turkey is doing the 
the, the exact opposite in its support for, for Azerbaijan. So I have a feeling it will, uh, we'll continue to see shelling in, in the uh, contested region, uh, as well as in Armenia and uh, Azerbaijan proper. Thank you. I guess the other thing that my sources tell me is coming up is a rather large election in the US. Do we want to make any comment on that? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, definitely uh, definitely taking over the news uh, these days. Obviously, next week we've got uh, a, a, the final scheduled uh, debate, obviously on Thursday this week. Um, the the candidates failed to appear, but next week on the twenty second is a uh, it's the final debate. Also, this interestingly, the same day that the Senate is set to to confirm Amy Coney Barrett as the new Supreme Court justice. Um, obviously, the long term impact of of the court shifting to a six three conservative majority is is yet to unfold, but could be certainly uh, significant after November 3rd, uh, should the should the election results be litigated. Absolutely, and um, actually as a reminder as well to, to listeners, next Thursday we've got our, uh, uh, we actually have our event on that topic, which we were looking at uh, the elections in the US and also, of course, uh, unrest in Europe, this topic I suggest we'll be uh, coming back to in this, but what else is on the radar? I mean, we talked about elections being trigger point for COVID-related uh, issues and unrest. Where else are there elections this week? So yes, quite two, two quite diverse offerings there. There's uh, is elections in Guinea on the 18th of October, where President Conde is seeking a, a third term, which he's pretty likely to get. But we, we anticipate a fair amount of unrest and disruption ahead of those and after the, 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 the vote itself, um, with opposition likely to rally, while the security forces will probably take quite a harsh line towards protesters, um, as they have done over, over the course of the year so far. A slightly different scale of, of election drama. New Zealand will go to the, the polls on, on the 17th of October as Yacinda Ardern seeks a, a second term uh, with her Labour Party. I guess the chances of that have been absolutely buoyed by her handling of the, the COVID crisis, although questions remain as to make up of the, of the coalition that she'll have to have to build. No, and as you say, I think, yeah, very strong support I would expect for her given, given the performance. And I think the temptation that it's many of these elections to be a referendum on on leadership during the crisis to some extent, isn't it? Mm. Of course, we see in the US, it's, it's much more complex than that, but it's definitely having an impact. And, and the other thing, we, you know, I knew you and I have discussed for a while has been the, the re-emergence of, of issues catalyzed by COVID. So where else are we looking for other issues to come up? Well, I think we've got uh, a lot of pressure on the, on the military-backed government in, in Thailand at the moment. Significant protests on the 14th of October, um, and we would expect those to sort of continue over the weekend and into next week. In, in response to the, the government's attempted to, to introduce a bill that would prohibit gatherings of more than four people. So, you know, authoritarian regimes coming under, or semi-authoritarian regimes coming under pressure by if issues compounded by the, the COVID crisis, such as standard of living, economic outlook, etc. You know, Thailand obviously massively hit by uh, lack of tourism revenues uh, over the three years so far. I think elsewhere as well, we see unrest in, in coming, upcoming in, in Costa Rica, where an attempt to... Uh, Increased taxes, a bill that was introduced two weeks ago, allegedly backed by a sort of conditional uh, on the, the government's receipt of more funds from the IMF. It's likely to be compounded by labour unions, which have called for nationwide strikes uh, on the 19th. See that kind of economic strain boiling over into, into you know, social uh, economic driven unrest. I think that's something we've also discussed in the context of unrest in France. I guess we have the Gilets jaunes movement prior to all this, and of course France badly hit at the moment from the look of it by COVID in Europe rising hospitalization. So what are we looking at in France? Well, absolutely. The turn of, of activism, I think, is something that will continue to characterize uh, Europe in, in, into 2021. But next week in France, you see a slightly different strand from the, the Gilets jaunes in, in terms of uh, Extinction Rebellion, which is planning a Rebellion Now campaign. Um, and while it's likely to be peaceful, we'll, we'll see the sort of traditional forms of 
of activism, of um, civil disobedience, uh, perhaps some disruption to traffic uh, or sort of road and, and transport infrastructure, um, as well as uh, specific businesses by that group to be exacerbating the, the climate crisis targeted. And I suppose, of course, the lesson we've seen so far this year is, of course, societal restrictions, and obviously you know, increasingly heavy in France at the moment, I guess, don't go hand in hand with uh, traditional activism terribly well, do they, in terms of trying to create a stir or or cause disruptions. I guess there's quite enough disruption going on already, or of course it's very hard to be out and about. So I think it'll be interesting to see you know, how groups are, are evolving to make their point in those times. I guess my final point, this is the year that started very early on with us considering a serious war in the Gulf, obviously an exchange of fire to some extent between the US and Iran. Uh, anything going on there that we should watch out for? Seems like a long time ago, doesn't it? Absolutely. Um, yeah, moving moving forward um, to the to the 18th of October, the UN's um, arms embargo uh, on Iran for conventional weapons is set to to expire or to be lifted, which will allow Iran to buy and sell those conventional weapons, uh, which it needs to to update its largely sort of outdated force, is likely to elicit quite a strong reaction from the US, regardless of uh, who, who the next president is threatening uh, those those countries that do decide to cooperate with Iran with. With further sanctions or diplomatic pressure and, and certainly that as a, as a crisis or a major international ongoing dispute is, is unlikely to uh, to disappear as we move into next year. Thanks Ed and that brings us nicely back I think to where we started the program with the uh, discussion of the traditional flashpoint with North Korea and the ICBMs there so I think that takes us full circle very nicely. Ed uh, thank you as ever to you and the team obviously I know it's going to be a, a busy period coming up and uh, you know, if hard work is its own reward, expect to get rewarded twice as much between now and the end of the year, I guess. But uh, we appreciate all you're doing and thanks very much indeed. Our pleasure. Thank you.